all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. This week, I have a very interesting guest for you. Uh, this is a long conversation. I actually ended up having to cut it down a little bit because we talked for almost two hours, but uh, I, I might have some extra footage that I'll put up somewhere at a different point because it was so interesting. But this week's guest is Daniel McStay. He is a provisional psychologist and uh, the senior practitioner at Mirakai, which is a live-in rehab center run by a company called Lives Lived Well. This Mirakai is in Burley, but they have services all over Queensland and New South Wales. And uh, they don't do just live-in rehabs um, or rehabs for drug and alcohol use, as I should say. Uh, And they don't just have live-in rehabs. They've got counseling services, legal advice, all kinds of super cool shit. Um, This is a super interesting conversation about the root causes of addiction, how people struggling with addiction are managing, uh, lots of different advice on resources and things that people can use, uh, where we're headed as a culture, mental health in general, and a lot of how mental health and addiction run hand in hand with each other and vice versa. And so this is a very, very cool conversation. It's kind of weird. I was listening back to it and uh, I'm a little bit embarrassed because he's so smart and academic that I like can hear myself trying to like match him. <laughs> like I'm trying to be a, as smart and a therapist as much as he is. <laughs> real stupid but um it's a super cool conversation at the very beginning it sounds a little bit like we're doing an advertisement for lives lived well and uh, i didn't get paid any money by them i'm not trying to advertise them i just think that what they do is fucking amazing and i didn't know that uh any of this shit existed and uh i'm so grateful that it does because i don't know like whenever i was dealing with my own bullshit i just kind of floundered through it on my own And uh, it would have been really cool to know that this stuff is out there. So if you personally are struggling with uh, substance issues, if they're having a negative impact on your life or your relationship with them is changing and you're not feeling very comfortable or like you're out of control or if somebody you know and someone you love is experiencing some trouble with that, these guys have got so many different options. It doesn't have to be something like that you have to stage an intervention and put someone in rehab. It's not like that. Um, there's just, that's just one of the many options that they've got. Uh, so if you are struggling, if you just want to have a conversation with them, to get in touch with them in Queensland, the number is one 727 957 If you call their hotline, tell them what's going on with your life. Even if it's just like you're thinking maybe you might be starting to have a problem, whatever, they'll give you the kind of support that meets your needs. So they're not going to just like send out a van and pick you up and send you to rehab. Uh, there's a bunch of different options, a bunch of different ways of going about doing it. So um, please enjoy this conversation. As always, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Hi, Danny. Hello. Morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's very wet and disgusting out there, but nice. It is. Yeah, yeah, but I kind of like it. It's a nice backdrop for, I guess, where we are, which is like a therapeutic space. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I know sometimes having gray skies like this feels like a blanket. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. It's got, a, for some people, I guess it's got that air of 
uh, a somber kind of air to it. But for me, I don't know, it's peaceful, it's nice. Kind of cozy. I think for those who probably can't see us, why well, I got lots of plants in my office. It's Yeah, you do. Yeah, <laughs> this is a really nice, comfortable office. Hey, you know, how you feel the environment, it goes a long way, even yeah. if you're not aware of it. You know, you want, I guess in a therapeutical setting, you want people to feel comfortable. Yeah, it's good. It's really bright. It's got life inside it. And um, so your job, what's your job specifically? Yeah, so my role is I'm the coordinator and senior practitioner of our dual diagnosis program. Um, within that program, I guess uh, I work... Uh, as a provisional psychologist. Um, and so I guess what dual diagnosis means is we work with individuals who are impacted by both uh, mental health diagnoses, comorbid with drug or alcohol addiction. What do you mean by comorbid? Comorbid essentially is co-occurring, so occurring at the same time. So often oh. you'll see that enmeshing of mental health with addiction or substance use. And so I guess it's about treating the whole rather than just like the individual. Yeah. Um, and I guess often that's, you know, a factor in mental health is is the mental health contributing to the use or the increase of substance use? And I guess uh, the substance use relationship then uh, with the mental health itself. So sort of, I guess, seeing a worsening of symptoms or an emergence of new symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so you meet with, and then, but you're here at Mirakai, which is a rehab center, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm based here at uh, Mirakai. This is one of six residential rehab services, uh, I guess, uh, of Lives Live Well. Uh, Lives Live Well is a non-government organization and a not-for-profit. And we have services all over Queensland and New South Wales uh, with up to about 400 staff. Um, and some of the programs we offer is not just residential rehabs, there's community programs, there's family programs, uh, indigenous-based programs, youth programs, um, services for withdrawal support, uh, programs like my own, where I don't just service clients within a residential setting, but also the community. Um, so I guess we provide drug and alcohol support in various forms, whether it's brief short-term intervention counselling, uh, whether it's people who want to come in and stay for up to 6 to 12 weeks in a residential setting like this at Mirakai, um, or you know, family programs where some young families are provided with not only counselling but case management support for up to 12 months. Mm. And, you know, that's so beneficial when we're talking about people. It's not just about drug and alcohol support. It's about this holistic picture of what is it that's going on in their life that's either uh, contributing to or perpetuating, I guess, the dysfunction that's occurring. Yeah. Wow. Might be legal or criminal issues, um, social welfare issues, financial matters. So I guess as an organization, we're really committed to providing evidence-based treatment uh, for people to see better outcomes and look across all domains. So uh, not only just providing a treatment and saying, you know, on your horse, but essentially really supporting people with a continuity of care, Mm. whether it's from residential setting into the community and uh, really trying to allow people to move past what it was that either contributed to their addiction and allow them to hopefully live a better life. Yeah. Wow, man. Mm. Yeah, it's a a pretty amazing looking thing that you're doing. And the, and the cool thing about it too is that you guys will take Centrelink benefits, right? Mm. So it's not because every time I've ever heard of rehab centers, it's like you think of celebrity rehabs and they're billions of dollars that they've <laughs> sure. got to go and live in these like fancy resorts and get better or whatever. Or it feels like a mental institution. And this Definitely. is a totally different thing, huh? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think that's a, a, an amazing thing about the services we offer. Uh, they're affordable and accessible by almost everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, like coming here to Mirakai is one of our residential settings. 
uh, assuming you're on Centrelink, which everyone in Australia as a citizen can access, uh, we will take an 85% deduction fortnightly of your Centrelink. So you, you, not only are you not anything out of pocket, but you've got a little bit of spending money left over. Yeah, um, wow. Within that service, I guess it's the value that you're getting uh, in that you know, you're know you accessing psychotherapy, whether it's through here or our Lives of Well Specialist Center attached to this service setting. Um, your access to psychiatrists for medication-based reviews, mental health nurses, counselors, uh, welfare officers who will help with things like uh, fines or spur debts, legal matters, uh, financial counselors. Mm. Uh, we've now got a whole bunch of gambling support programs which are uh, situated all over, essentially, mm. to support people with comorbid gambling addictions. So it's this, uh, I guess you're coming in and, and often people think, oh, well, drugs are my problem. But when you really start teasing it apart, you realize that there's just these layers of chaos and dysfunction that really all need to be attended to. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I think about this a lot. I talk about it a bunch. Like, no animal, and we are animals, will willingly poison themselves and destroy their own life if they didn't have a fucking good reason to do it. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, we're not, we're not actively out here just going, yeah, I can't wait to ruin my own life. 100%. Nobody's doing yeah, that. There's yeah. got to be something going on. And you're right. Like, you, if you address just the drug, just the use of whatever the thing is, as soon as you get rid of that use, great, you might be clean for the six weeks that you're living at Marikai. But if you haven't addressed all of the reasons that made you want to use drugs in the first place, you're going to go straight back to it. Definitely. Yeah, it's not just a matter of, and I think that really speaks to, you know, what is addiction? Mm-hmm. If, we, if we just looked at it unidimensionally as this, as something which is a physical dependence. You know, all you need is abstinence from this substance and your life will get better. It, it doesn't work like that. You know, mm. you need to look at this, this greater picture. You know, what are the biological genetic factors contributing to this addiction? What are the psychological factors in regards to not only maybe predisposed mental health conditions, mm. but in their life, you know, have they experienced some form of trauma or something which is, uh, I guess, precipitated Uh, the events that have led to where they are. Mm. Um, Social factors, you know, living environment, family environments, occupation, do they have finances? You know, there is so many uh, variables Mm. which contribute to addiction that exactly as you said, you know, if it was just a matter of, oh, well, I need to be uh, away from my substance of choice, that that will fix all my problems. And it's just not the the case. Mm. I know, I notice it in myself, like if... Like I transfer whatever that underlying dissatisfaction is that I have. And I've noticed quite clearly it's an, ab- it's an abandonment of myself. Mm. Anytime I'm not listening to myself about what I want or what I need, what my, and usually what it comes down to is like my meaning or my mm. value in my life. And I think that's obviously like I'm coming from a pretty a privileged background and environment that it's basically if I'm not listening to myself, not actively contributing to my life and giving myself meaning, it's like this little noise that starts eating away at my heart. And it just starts eating away at me from the inside. And I start feeling more and more hopeless. What's Mm. the point of being here? What's the point of anything? Life is hard. Life doesn't give me any value. And so then I look into numb that or escape from it. And a lot of it is it's a, it's doubt really like it's this doubt that t- verges on hopelessness that just creeps up in the inside of my head. And if I don't pay attention to it and do something about it, mm. that's the first place I go. Yeah. So it doesn't matter, like, because I've, 
drunk a lot way too much in my life and then stopped because <laughs> <laughs> sure. I was like, oh, okay, that's not helping me. Uh, yeah. But then, then I'll dive into other shit because it's like, all right, well, if the alcohol can't do it, then maybe I need it in this avenue or maybe this avenue or maybe this avenue. And no matter what avenue I'm taking, we can address each one of those substances or mm. people or like Muay Thai, you know, mm. like, all right, great. I'll just be a fighter now. And that's mm. the thing I do. And I go hardcore into everything. Definitely, yeah. And it's because it's... Again, like, am I doing another escape from myself? Mm. And look, I think that's only natural, is that mm. if we face something aversive, something we don't like, uh, let's say it's hot tarmac on the ground, or we eat a food we don't like, we want to avoid it. It's mm. not nice for us. And the same goes for un uncomfortable emotions. If we feel a certain way as a result of circumstances in our life where we're not happy or we're not feeling content or uh, for whatever reason it might be, that is not nice to experience. You know, I know that, you know that. It's just not, it's, it's an icky feeling. And so it's very natural to do everything to avoid it. Yeah. I'd almost say it, it, it's hard-coded from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, and so in that regard, substances play a role. You know, they're, they're this thing that we can do and we can escape for a temporary period some of the dysfunction that we experience in our life or, or we, can, we can escape those uncomfortable, unwanted emotions. I mean, you think how socially acceptable it is to say, oh, well, I've had a really tough day at work. I can't wait to have a drink or a glass of wine. You know, there's this yeah. part of our culture is this idea of self-medicating through substances since, I guess, the start of mankind. When you think about, you know, in Asianic countries, whether it was opium or, you know, look at... Um, so across so many cultures, I guess, substance use. Yeah, 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 sure. I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's our natural, like, little inclination. And, and in one way, exploring altered states of consciousness can give you a different perspective, which mm. I think, it's like, I mean, going through tough shit then gives you a different perspective. Mm. Like, there's something almost, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call it addictive necessarily, but there's something appealing about realizing your own potential after mm. you've experienced something Adverse, And it, that could Definitely. be like having like an intense psychedelic experience mm. and then coming back and being like, holy shit, like <laughs> I got to get my shit together. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? Like, oh my God, that was so intense. It showed me a lot. It also scared the fuck out of me. Mm. And so now when I'm back, it's like, all right, now I'm going to, I'm definitely going to go to work today. I'm definitely going to do the best I can. I'm going to, I'm in line with God now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so after you see something like that, like there's something kind of nice about that revitalization mm. of what matters. But even I'd say within that, you know, there's, cause it's, if we use the analogy of, well, why is it that a lot of people can recreationally drink on the weekends come Monday, they put the bottle down mm. is there is factors which would contribute to your capacity to engage in either a substance yeah. recreationally. And, 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 and after that experience, for whatever the motivation is, to say, oh, well, that's, that's okay for now. Well, that's me. You know, you've got the, you've got the off button, or, right. the, or the stop button, the brake pedal. And I think, you know, if we think about the chicken and the egg scenario, it's one that is a, is a philosophical quandary that can be applied to addiction in that, all right, well, was it my substance addiction that naturally then led to certain elements of dysfunction, whether it was a decline in mental health, uh, let's say criminal offending, um, you know, relationship breakdown, just all this chaos. And as a result of that, then my mental health was low and I was depressed and I was just feeling terrible. And, or was it 
my mental health was so low and I had no sense of purpose and I had no goals and I felt so discontent that mm. substances were a perfect means for avoidance. Mm. And, and often that's, you know, when we sort of step back and we look at addiction as a whole, you know, it is about looking at that saying, you know, I guess this, this we're growing out of it, but the, the belief system around addiction before was the idea that, well, it's purely pleasure-seeking, you know, yeah. get over it, get a job, uh, and you're only doing this because this is something that, you know, you enjoy. Yeah. And I can speak for, you know, the clients that I speak to or the clients who enter the, this residential program. Um, it's just not the case. Yeah, it's not a matter of enjoyment at all. Mm. It's, and it's a trap in a way, and it's a source of shame. Massively. And then that's the problem because it's such a spiral because it's such a source of, source of shame. Like, I mean, I think people that have healthy relationships with substances in general have that off switch because their use of substances doesn't generate a new source of pain or mm. shame. But I think a lot of it is that when, you, when you're using it, I, your relationship with a substance can change. My relationship mm. with alcohol changed a lot. Mm. And the alcohol never changed. Mm. Alcohol was always the same. And it wasn't like, oh, now suddenly I'm using it more because I like it more. Not at all. Mm. It was the exact opposite. It was like the the more damaging my relationship with it was, was because mm. of how I felt about using it. Yeah. it. You know, it became, it's like a Russian doll self-compounding thing. Yeah, the more sure. I hate it, the more I need it in a way, which yeah. got really fucking gross. Massively. Mm. And you know, that's it when you sort of break those layers down in terms of, all right, well, we've got that physiological dependency with substances in that, uh, you know, the pleasure reward system of our brain, uh, depending on the substance we're speaking of, but traditionally, let's say, well, what sort of we see a lot of in media is methamphetamine ice, that, that pleasure-reward limbic system of the brain, which is crucial in us just feeling pleasure and uh, positive emotion in our daily lives. Yeah, you're fucking on top of the world. Yeah, it feels great. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got this, this button which can, you know, really access that, release this flood of neurotransmitters and we can feel great. But the body and the brain adjusts over time, you know, it down-regulates. It stops producing that natural uh, level of whether it's like noradrenaline, dopamine, serotonin in, in the case of methamphetamine. Um, and so then when you don't have that substance, you know, that's often that withdrawal or, or dip below baseline is what we'd say. The body's now producing far less than it needs to to function normally, to be at homeostasis. Mm. And so as a result of that, now you're feeling chronically depressed and empty. And, and so it's only natural in that state, you can imagine the consequences that flow on, the social withdrawal, maybe a, a lack of focus or attention at work, dysfunction in your relationship. And, and now you'll need more of the substance to achieve the same level of high because you need to get from your depressed, uh, I guess, neurological state, if I use that term, in terms of reaching baseline. And then we need to go higher than that again. Yeah, so, get back on top. Yeah, you know, that's where it's like, right, even just physiologically, you're in an uphill battle mm -hmm. um, with a lot of substances. But I, I think a big part of since the years that I've been working in this industry is what speaks to me is that the underlying mental health factors which contribute to and perpetuate people's substance use. And what do you think a lot of that is? Do you, I mean, obviously there's a shitload of it, but in your experience, what do you think some of the major contributing factors are? Sure. Look, I would say, I mean, this is my footnote in that the research and everything that looks at this, it's entirely complex. You know, why does one person do one thing and, and someone else mm -hmm. doesn't? You know, the, the variation between humans as a species is, is vast. Um, 
I think if I speak from my experience with a lot of clients, you know, you see a lot of clients that it's environmental factors which have significantly contributed to their substance use. You know, this is exposure to drugs and alcohol and or significant trauma, um, whether it's forms of uh, physical violence, sexual abuse, neglect, um, you know, really just awful and unfortunate events that have occurred to them at some point in their life that has sort of started off or kicked off this snowball of, of chaos. Mm. Um, often, you know, it might be the area that you're in. It might be a lower socioeconomic area where there's increased crime, there's reduced access to services. Uh, you, you don't have good role modeling through parenting if potentially they're not there. You know, it's, mm. it's almost that before you reached an age of full prefrontal cortex cognitive uh, function where you can truly make informed decisions those decisions were already being made for you mm, mm. And, and I mean you mentioned it before that you know when you said oh well, I've been relatively privileged in that in, in maybe the upbringing it's that often it's it, it's hard to imagine what it would be like say for us if we'd been in that context yeah sure um, you know I was speaking to a client the other day who's you know, she's a lovely person and, and, and I can tell she's a good mum and heart's in the right place but just speaking about instances of where when she'd use and she'd withdraw and she'd, for three days she'd be sleeping you know her three, five and seven year old are in the house left alone mm. for three days yeah, yeah you know? and then what happens in that context it's, it, it's stuff that we couldn't really imagine I guess we're, unless we're in that so yeah. yeah, and perpetuating then that cycle because then those kids are going to experience that neglect and that, and the, it just increases their risk factors for developing issues themselves. Yeah, it is. It's a chronic fucking nonstop cycle, huh? Massively. And we, we know that there's her heritable like genetic factors with addiction without a doubt. That's mm. one piece of the puzzle. But yeah, definitely that environmental factors, the early exposure and that home environment. You know, if we think from a sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, a lot of those needs that we need for a sense of um, I guess like uh, holistic sort of psychological wellness yeah, aren't place there. of belonging, place yeah. of security yeah that stuff yeah, it's, safety. I interviewed this guy uh, a while ago he's a psychiatrist, Leon Pachowski is his mm -hmm. name, he's up, he's up around here he's a cool dude, do yeah, you know cool. who I'm talking about? no I don't think I, so he's on the Gold Coast, he's cool um, he did uh, in his early days like he was uh, around the time of like Ram Dass okay and those guys and sure. the people that started MAPS. Yes, yep, yeah, uh, for sure. Yep. The Multidisciplinary yep. Association of Psychedelic Studies. So he was doing ketamine work. Okay, wow. Like in the 80s down here. Wow, <laughs> yeah, the un unregulated days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah he'd, he'd be something near 80 now or something. But he, uh, cool. so he was saying what a lot of his research now is, is looking into the development of the, um, the HPA axis mm -hmm. in, your, in your brain that, the first three years of your life, including the period while you're in the womb, mm. create this development of a sense of identity and person. Mm. And any neglect or trauma in those first three years mm. will have significant impact on the development of that part of their brain, mm. which means lack of emotional control, behavior problems, um, mental health issues, chronic mental health issues that are basically sure. you're starting from, as you were kind of talking about, after having substance use, you kind of drop down into this like mm. below baseline. I mean, these are kids that are being born below baseline with Without already, a without a sense of self and a means of self-regulation through their brain. Mm. The brain chemistry is already 
You know, it's the yeah. wiring of their brain is different. Hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's like almost if you think of the analogy like a car. It's 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 like providing someone a new car, but removing one of the wheels, not putting fuel in the tank, not having a windshield, mm, mm. Uh, and saying, all right, well now you need to go from A to B, and then someone next to them has a brand new car, and then think about the roads that they travel on. You know, the one road might be clearly paved, another might be flooded in one section, have potholes. There's, mm. and I guess that's an, an analogy of the vessel with which we're sort of born with the body. Yeah. There's exactly as you're saying, there is so many factors in utero and, um, you know, in the womb and then even in early development that if they're not met, it has significant impact on our ability to progress successfully through developmental stages. Yeah. And, you know, then you factor in the environmental elements of that, whether it's neglect and just everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you really gain a picture of, well, shit, you know, this, this person never stood a chance. Yeah. Like, you know, that's... Yeah, uh, man. And so when somebody comes to you guys, what what is it usually that brings people to here? Mm, okay. It's a good one. Yeah, I guess I'd break it down into sort of two categories. You've got intrinsic motivation and then extrinsic motivation. So often, uh, let's say, you know, your extrinsic motivation is those external factors. You've got a partner saying, hey, look, uh, I'm not about this. And if you go to resi or residential rehab, and then we'll see if things will work. Or it might be a situation of uh, legal factors, you know, they want it to look good for court or, you know, these are external motivating factors. Maybe their children have been removed by child safety and they want to get them back. Then there's internal or intrinsic factors, this sense of, well, I'm sick of my mental health deficits and I want to make a change or I want a better life or I want a quality relationships. Or, and, and I think what we see is often that even if people come in with external motivating factors, whether it's around court or their relationship, slowly over time, I guess, through abstinence from that substance, uh, access to a lot of good healthcare services, um, a supportive environment, we see those external motivating factors slowly shift to internal. Mm-hmm. So rather than, you know, I, I'm here because I don't want to get in trouble or like I, I don't want to get in trouble with court or I don't want to be sent to jail. It's like, well, I want a better life than this. I don't even want to have to deal. I don't want to mm-hmm. offend. It's not in line with my values and who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to be a better parent. I want to be a better partner. And, and so why people come in, I'd say for the most part, there's a, there's a genuine sense of, of good and, and, and wanting and needing help. Yeah, needing to change. And and that's an interesting thing, too, because I think a lot of times, like with a slow, especially when your environment is, let's say you're just born in a chaotic environment, mm. low socioeconomic environment, violent environment, where everybody else around you is like, oh, it's normal to go to jail. Mm. Like everybody in the crew goes to jail. Mm. So we, when you are in that environment and you're kind of like, well, no, fuck it, I don't want to be, I don't want to go to jail. But... I think like sometimes it's hard to get people to want to go get help because they're like, no, this is part of life. This is normal. Everybody goes to jail. It's no big deal. But then like if somebody in a different environment that nobody's going to jail and all of a sudden they get sent, it's like, oh, fuck, I fucked up here. Mm. Like this is really bad. And so, yeah, I can see how an extrinsic um, factor would kind of be like, it'd be a hard one to 
it's an easy one to blame because you're like, oh, I just, yeah, I just don't want to go to jail or whatever. I need to get through this court thing. Yeah. But because they're thinking, oh, but that's just life. That's just kind of normal life. All right, this is the thing I have to do. Then you realize, oh, fuck, I actually don't have to live that way. Mm. Like, that's a nice thing, like the, the ability to change it over and realize, oh, all of these external factors that I've taken for granted, assuming that that's just the way people live their mm. lives, that that's not the way I have to live my mm. life, that there's another choice for me, there's another option for me. Because I think it's too easy to, to, for that to become a part of an identity in a way. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's a sense of grieving or loss of identity that comes with some people through that yeah. period of moving away from substances. Um, you know, there's uh, often people's intention or engagement with substances, as, we, as we've discussed, is not insidious or a sense of wanting the dysfunction. Mm. And I think, you know, often for people coming in here, they're not even quite sure what it is they want or what needs to change. You know, there's this naive sort of belief that exactly that, if we remove the substance, that's the problem. It's, it's only in that space whilst they're here that you can truly look at all these factors which are contributing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want people to live good lives. Like everyone should and we believe does have the capacity to live a good life. Mm -hmm. uh, but that requires work. And, and, and some people are much more disadvantaged than others in the hand they've been dealt in their life. And so it's really about uh, working with the client where they're at. Mm. And you know, a big part, uh, I guess you mentioned it before, the shame about coming in is stigma still around mental health and, and substance addiction is such a huge barrier for people sometimes in terms of seeking help. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, just because that's the thing. And that's the other crazy thing about it. It's like, if you're managing it, you're using and you're managing it and you're used to chaos, mm. you don't realize that your life is a fucking mess. Mm. And it happens really slowly. I mean, I, it, it's a slow degeneration for me. I think it probably would have happened over two or three years mm. until I had like a moment where I hadn't slept for a couple days and mm. was like, I had my, my, I was living up in Darwin and my arm got infected. I had mm. a tattoo and I'd, I had never lived in such a humid environment getting tattoos like this so I didn't really know how to take care of it but I've always healed fine mm -hmm. and this particular part of my arm got really badly infected because I wasn't sleeping I was on god knows what I was drinking oh. all the time and I had not slept for three days I think at this point yeah. and it was like it was a veil lifted up <laughs> and I looked around at myself and went holy fuck yeah I, I live in chaos I can't use my arm I don't know who any of these people are, and I don't mm. want to fucking be here anymore. Mm. And it took like a proper slap in the face to be like, where, where have I, what's just happened? A moment of clarity. Yeah. yeah and it, and that was, it was a development over a long period of time. And then now, you know, it's still taken five years mm. for that to normalize itself. And it's not that that it's, that mentality is always still inside me, mm. you know? That lure is always there, like, mm. uh, but remember the chaos times? Remember yeah. how fun it is to just not give a fuck about anything, have no responsibility, just disappear into the pure chaos of nothingness? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, without wow. a doubt. <laughs> yeah, once again, it's that, you know, and, and those feelings generally emerge when we find ourselves in a situation or, or an emotional state that is aversive, is not nice, and it mm. takes... That's where, you know, treatment of addiction is so much more than abstinence. Learning mm -hmm. uh, what it is about, uh, I guess, your thinking patterns, your cognitions that drive you to use substances. You know, in terms of relapse prevention planning, mm 
Yeah. You know, how, what's your capacity to even identify emotions? You know, often we don't realize that till well after. Something happens, we have a phone call, we're upset, we're stressed, we get in the car, someone pulls in front of us, we then got this element of row rage screaming at them, we then act a certain way with our boss or employer. It's not till the end of the day when we're like, shit, this has just been a fucking awful day. Yes, yes, man. Really, if we'd had the insight and wherewithal, this self-concept to identify early when we were dysregulated Mm. and use that as a warning sign, uh, uh, I guess a big red stop sign that says, hey, I need to put strategies in place. I need to manage these emotions because if we don't, if, if we step away from the driver's seat and we allow our emotions to drive the bus, then we're on a collision course with destruction in whatever form, even if not addiction, you're not going to be the best version of yourself. Yes, man. Fuck, that is so well said. It's a mm. really good point. It is, and it can be something so stupid and small, and I think a lot of it too is, uh, I mean, obviously I can only speak from the inside of my own brain, but it's like a shame about not being able to handle something. Mm. So it's like, oh, I don't like the way that feels. I can't deal with it right now. I don't have time, or I don't have... I don't personally feel like I could trust myself to know what to do with mm. this thing right now. I'd rather defer the responsibility to something else. Someone else will tell me what to do because I don't know how to handle this. Mm. And then, or you don't want to ask for help because you're like, fuck, if I ask about how to deal with this, then people are going to think I'm weak or think I'm, mm. I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? So yeah, then public perception of addiction God. and mental health as a whole, you know, it's like uh, without a doubt, I guess I often come on, I like to play devil's advocate in that, you know, I think the barriers that present themselves in terms of stigma are still very real. I mean, stigma in itself really is an evolutionary uh, adaptation. You know, the mm-hmm. idea is that it's, an, it's part of the disease avoidance system. You know, we, we yeah, see sure. something that is not normal, whether it's a physical disfigurement or, or something that is not typical of the human behavior, and it generally provokes, provokes a sense of disgust. And that serves, from an evolutionary perspective, a very valuable adaptation. Mm. You know, if someone in our clan or our tribe or whatever presented with this ailment, well then, shit, I don't want to get that. You know, that doesn't look good. And yeah. so we would avoid it. Yeah. In, in, in that sense of disgust that we have was hardwired in us. It was, a, it was a defense mechanism for that very purpose. And so that's the challenge with, I think, stigma exists, but often there's this belief that it's just this... Uh, this social construct that we're trying to overcome. And I guess I'm an optimist in a lot of ways that I, I think if we've come in the space of human history and, and development, you know, we're looking at the human homo sapiens in Australia, 50 to 65,000 years. Mm. In the 1950s, we were still giving people lobotomies, <laughs> you know, like trephining, removing parts of the skull or historical just just crazy mental health treatments, bloodletting yeah. and stuff like this in yeah. our very near past. And we're already in, in such a short span, such a short time frame. We have come so far in trying to remove those stigmas and we're fighting against an evolutionary drive. When, and do you know what I think is kind of fucked about it? I think you're absolutely right. And thank God for that, because at least we're having the conversation and that, mm. and just, I mean, rethinking addiction in general, like I was saying mm. that I'm just doing this, this course online. That's a Yale, Yale university top, 
a supplemental course for medical professionals on how to deal differently with addiction. Mm. And it's all the same shit kind of that you're talking about. Like, wow, we need to take a holistic approach. It's really old school to think that it's a physical dependence or it's just a genetic thing or it's just that somebody wants to use drugs. Yes. It's none of those things and all of those things all mm. mangled together. Mm. And that if we look at it holistically, we'll have a better chance of treating these people mm. uh, in a better way. But... I, I'm just kind of working on a joke about this right now because I also think to be the devil's advocate of your devil's advocate, mm, right. the Let's God's advocate, <laughs> yeah, this is... is that we are also making mental health a fucking badge of honor. Mental mm. health disorders, sorry, I should mm. say, like this weird badge of like, I'm my anxiety, my paranoia, my... Mm. And it's like fucking when you have experienced yourself or in other people severe mental dysfunction it is mm. not fucking cute mm, like there's sure. nothing it's torture for mm. everybody involved mm. and that and i am frustrated right now at this whole like kind of like online health coach instagram influence they're like you can heal yourself just get a pair of gym tights yeah. you know it's like go oh, fuck yourself yeah. you don't know like yeah, having a having a size smoothie and yeah. You know, post a photo on Instagram. That's a healthy lifestyle, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, sorry, I think you're as addicted to yourself as any of these people are addicted to anything else. Like, sure. you know what I mean? Like, they're sitting there trying to tell you how to live your life. And it's like, you don't know how to live your life. You're spending all your time constantly feeding an, an addiction to an impossible version of yourself that doesn't exist. Without a doubt. Yeah. And this, and so what I'm worried about is, uh, and just, I mean, besides like the silliness of whatever that is, mm. and, that, and I think that's a mental health issue that mm. we have to address, that people are becoming addicted to an impossible version of themselves, mm. which is suppressing the shame mm. because they're trying to present this perfect version of themselves. All that is, is a repression of what they're shamed of mm. themselves. But besides that is that we normalize mental health is a positive uh, mental health issues normalizing mm. mental health issues so people can get support is important mm. but becoming a victim of mental health issues as a mm. part of your identity is a really fucking serious problem without a doubt because yeah. then we water it down like i had a i watched that movie the joker mm. and i couldn't watch it man i really struggled because it was like what are we trying to hollywoodize an extreme psychopathic disorder. Do you know what I mean? Like, this isn't... It's not cute. Mm. It's not like, oh, let's make this guy out to be a thing that we can... But what I find interesting there, and now we can get back into the uh, devil's advocate playing the devil's <laughs> advocate, is, to me, because I'm, a, I guess, inherently a, a, a mild optimist, in that it speaks to our capacity as humans to see below the layers of human behavior, you know, in that oh, sure. context, you know, because it's like, why is it? Why is it that we're siding with this, this megalomaniac, you know, this murderer, this criminal? Mm. And it doesn't make sense. Why is it that people are feeling compassion and, and putting this person on a pedestal? And I mean, it was very artfully done in that just like what we we're speaking about earlier, it was presenting very real, both biological, but also environmental precipitating factors that really contributed to this person's mental health decline. And I think for me, that's a sense of, that's a sense of optimism in society, that we oh, have people a, who have a capacity to exact empathy. Yeah. You know, it's what makes us very human. It's what allows us to exist in that. But are we not glorifying it? Well, I guess that's the question of saying, well, what are the consequences? And, yeah. you know, you'd have to ask, well, what are the consequences of that? You know, is it glorifying criminality and I think you know there'll always be a subset of society that 
you know, will in, in, have sort of a, a hallmark of their, their life and the way they live and, and that's sort of their, you know, the, the badge of honour. But I don't think in this case, I mean, in my perspective, it is that. I think we see very normal people fighting against that natural stigma you know they're mm. seeing con they're seeing the context of of what drives this person to do what they do and um yeah that's a good way of looking at me and like because I, I think i probably only looked at it the fact like uh oh we're glorifying a psychopathic behavior that's no good and yes we need to figure out the contributing factors to it but but now that you say that too like it actually just made me realize like you know you're watching scarface and you don't see any of the other stuff you just see the glorification of that kind of behavior mm. and that's a dangerous thing yeah you're right like we've been glorifying psychotic shit for a long fucking time for sure and i think in the in the instance of the joker it was artfully done for that they wanted you as the audience member to feel that compassion mm. that empathy that moment when he was you know ridiculed on the talk show mm. and you just it's almost like you're you're cheering for him when yeah. he when he commits homicide and it's like whoa what just happened yeah, i thought i was like, a normal I... functioning healthy human and now i'm happy for this guy but yeah. yeah i think that speaks to the breadth of human emotion you know we and to me that shows a sense of hope around humans that we have this ability to have compassion and empathy towards people but we all we need to also have uh, a strong set of boundaries and sense of self to not be misled because mm. like like what you just said I mean that's a good point like you're cheering for him but he's committing homicide mm. do you know what I mean like mm. Hitler mm. did that on a huge scale because he was very good at getting a lot of people on side and understanding the reasons behind why doing shitty things is okay Definitely. and I and I myself you know like I can watch myself depending on what the motivating factor is and mm. what what it's giving me, mm. I can do shitty, shitty things, mm. you know? And it's fucking... And sometimes you can't see it until afterward, and then you go, oh, my God, like, I was really selfish just mm. then, or that was that was really unkind. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that ability for you to identify and rewind the tape and, mm. and acknowledge that insight, even for people coming into residential rehab or accessing treatment, is that's the hope, even with psychotherapy, there's a sense of awareness around, you know, how is it that my my thoughts or, or my behaviors influence my life? You know, there's mm -hmm. often this misconception that, well, the things that happen to me, you know, I, I'm late for work, I miss the bus, uh, my boss yells at me, whatever, results in how I feel. As if we're so reactive that we're not in control of our emotion. And it's just really not true. It's that often an event will lead to a, a thought in our head, you know, a cognition, a belief system. And when we play that thought on, on repeat, which our mind very well does, it then results in, a, in a, an outcome emotion. And mm -hmm. I guess an example of that, let's say you and I are walking down the street now uh, to the shops and a car drives past and someone yells out the window, you know, oh, you idiot, oh, you wanker, or whatever it is. And, and both you and I could have very different experiences. Let's mm. say if I've, uh, I'm insecure and I uh, have poor diminished mental health, the thoughts that are likely to appear in my head are, well, that person's talking to me. Is it what I'm wearing? Is it because I'm looking a bit fat at the moment? Damn, I ate too much for Christmas. <laughs> oh, shit, do they know me? Or is that my boss's friend? So, mm. it, of course, we're likely to feel then anxious, stressed, terrible. Whereas mm. your experience might be, geez, that person's an idiot. Or, or you might not even think they're talking to you. You, you look around over your shoulder and think, geez, who are they talking to? Mm. 
And so that highlights that a circumstance or an event does not always lead to the emotion. It's, it's having the ability to identify our thoughts in our head and then understand, are they helpful or are they not helpful? Are they serving me or are they not serving me? And if yeah. they're not, then we very well need to change them. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's, and that's a great example too because it's like, yeah, the amount that you can let that roll and, and to even just observe that every time, like if you were walking through a shopping center and you hear people laugh, mm. like one of my observations a few years ago was that every time I heard anyone laugh in any situation, I assumed they were laughing at me. Mm. And then I realized that, like, I just went through life being like, fucking everyone's always laughing at me. That was the first thought. And then it's like, what? How could that be possible? So then I had to question that thought because it seemed so stupid. Mm. And then I would watch myself every time I hear someone laugh and get that feeling straight away like, oh, look, they're laughing at me again. Mm. And then it was like, oh, no. Oh, that's just a thought. This is a weird, stupid, paranoid, insecure thought because Mm. I don't feel good in me. There's something that's not good in me. And then eventually seeing that and being like, I'm not me. I'm not that thought. Yeah. That's not reality. That's a thought that occurred. Yeah, yeah. And it's automatic, and and it, mm. it happens with zero awareness. And it does that for a purpose. I mean, if if the thoughts are in our head were broadcast at the front of our attention, oh, like fuck. a whiteboard, Jesus. can you imagine it would be impossible? So mm. we've got this backing tape to our day, and that backing tape drives how we feel. And for, if we don't keep in check of that backing tape, if we sign over the, the power of authority and let it do whatever it wants to do, then we're essentially signing over our capacity to have mastery of our life, you know, mm-hmm. of our day, of our emotions. And if we don't do that, then you can see how that will then flow into other areas. Mm. You know, you and I leave that interaction of that example where we're walking down to the shops and maybe you're catching up with a friend or a partner, then you're disengaged or you're insecure or you're not, you don't ask them how their day is or, and then they might think, oh, well, I don't like this person anymore. I don't want to be with them. Yes. And now that compounds and you can see that often there is this sense of, and we briefly mentioned it before, but no matter what it is in life, we do need to take an element of accountability and responsibility and say, hey, you know, the things that have happened to me are awful or the things that have been done to me were out of my volition. But you know what? I am the one who controls what happens tomorrow. Right. Yeah, it is my responsibility for the way I treat other people, that I treat others, that uh, I live in a life in accordance with my own values. I can change that. Sure, I can't change this shit that's happened to me. And yes, it's affected me. But I can't carry that round as my uh, reason for perpetuating shitty behaviors. Right. And so that, so yeah, actually to loop back a little bit, because we were talking about, you know, that there's so many causes for uh, substance use disorders and issues Mm. for people going forward and issues and relapsing and not getting, trying their very hardest to get better and then not Mm. being able to sustain it. It's that... uh, yeah, we understand, we can intellectualize that there's a reason why somebody would be that way, but mm. they, we do also have to move forward. There has Without to be a way a of healing that. And so, like, so even if somebody does, has been dealt a fucking terribly bad hand, mm. there, there is still, in your experience, ability to change. Without a doubt. Uh, like... My belief is that everyone can change. Mm. It's a belief of, well, one, this organization has a very strong belief about that um, uh, modality that I 
really am very interested in, in terms of intensive short-term psychodynamic therapy, has a belief that everyone can change. Um, and I'd like to say that the psychology as a whole has that belief. Um, so I think that some people have a much larger hill to climb, without a doubt. And sometimes it can seem goddamn impossible. Mm. Uh, but everyone has the potential to, no matter how small. And often when supporting people from various walks of life with various afflictions, it, you know, your goals might be very small. It might just be saying, you know, getting out of bed in the morning, showering, making a meal, you know, going for a walk, just you're, you're bringing it back to some very foundational things. Mm. But what we know of, of the brain of human behavior, that has a positive influence. So if we can start there, if we can even just do that, that might give you enough strength and wherewithal and motivation to do the next thing mm, mm. and the next thing. And you build on that yeah. and, and it's not going to be easy and it's going to suck and they're going to hurt along the way and you're going to slip up. But with, you need to believe in yourself and you need to have hope and you need to also take accountability. Yeah. Yeah. So taking accountability, the, I mean, the scary thing about it is like, oh fuck, this is a lot of responsibility because it's my problem and my job to fix it. But at mm. the same time, it's like, oh, it's not out of my control. I'm mm. in control here. Every day that I take a little step mm. in the direction of my own healing, I will get better somehow, mm. slowly. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think scary. that's what's so cool about um, this concept. Because, yeah, in my experience of kind of watching this happen is that it doesn't do you any good to just take medication for your mm. problem or, you know, just just go and periodically see a GP mm. for this thing. Like you need a holistic team of people mm. and especially mental health support. Cause yeah, like th that's one, a one aspect. Cause mm. it, there are some addiction treatment things that exist, right? Like what are the kind of various treatments out there in terms of, uh, for like, a yeah, addiction helping people itself? with like chronic addiction. Yeah. I guess like, well, in, in regards to our services, or I guess as a whole, you know, you've got residential settings where that is looking holistically. But mm. even as you mentioned, you talked earlier about private rehabs or institutionalized approaches. There are so many different approaches with mental health and addiction. You know, you can have very clinical medical settings where the idea is, well, we need to medicate this person. And once we see stability, we release them to the community. Mm. Um, there's a lot of private rehabs that just think, well, it's this idea of wellness, that if we attend yoga and that we have healthy meals and, you know, we say nice things, that then that will solve our problems. Mm. You know, and there's a sense of naivety that comes with that. I, I almost question the ethics in relation to that. Sure. Because um, you feel real good while you're at rehab, but not sure. after <laughs> There's like, you know, a, a classic pop example is uh, Jordan Peterson going to Russia. Yeah. Um, you might have heard about that. Yeah, you know? I just saw a little update on it yesterday from his daughter. Yeah, look, and you know, you got you got a question. I mean, I can't, I'm reading between the lines with that, but... Uh, that sounds like a pretty significant chronic, you know, benzodiazepine dependency. And you've got someone who's opting for, by what it sounds like, if you take all evidence as it is, um, essentially a medical detox, this idea that, you know, we're medicated so that we can physiologically make it through quite a significant withdrawal period, mm. which in fairness, alcohol and benzodiazepines has a really low overdose threshold. So there is significant risks to your life if you did stop suddenly, mm. um, you know, and then, but even that in itself, like a medical detox, all you're doing is you're, you're removing your sort of physical dependency, but all these things which contributed to why you use the substance in the first place, 
uh, are unattended. Yeah, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, and there's this holistic sort of treatments that people look at. People sort of look, even beyond holistic, people look for more psychedelic management of their yeah, mental health. Yeah, ayahuasca and iboga. All sorts of stuff. I, I talked to a guy who, um, who was a heroin addict for a really long time and he used iboga mm. um, as a means of at least just getting through the physical dependency of it. And he felt, he felt that he gained enough psychological clarity after that experience. I think it was three days or something that he was mm. in an Iboga center, um, that he was able to deal or have enough space to deal with the reasons why he was using in the mm. first place. And he got out of it fine. Mm. But yeah. So yeah, there's these like odd psychedelic ways of doing it. Yeah, look, and I don't, I mean, even if you look at the body of research, there's, you know, the evidence that's informed around psilocybin and its mm. uh, treatment of effectiveness so far in regards to alcohol remission, you know, from dependency. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of evidence-based support for, I guess, illicit substances around the management and cure, but it's still, you're looking at that element of even the the social welfare element is incredibly important it sure. is very common for most our clients to come in here that have either lost their license from multiple duis so then how are they going to gain employment because they can't access work they've got significant financial debt from legal criminal offending they've got outstanding legal or criminal matters uh, they can't live in their local area because of like risk to their safety or their health you know you've got all these problems mm. that are following them that aren't just going to disappear, yeah. um, you know, yeah. and, and, and crawling yourself out of that mm. in itself is incredibly challenging. Yeah. Fuck. And so, yeah. And that's so cool about here is that you've got, you know, people that help you deal with your debts, people yeah. with legal matters, financial matters, For then sure. psychological support, then also your physical dependency stuff. So you've got psychiatrists that can help to, you know, if you need medication, you've got, I imagine people doing opiate replacement therapy stuff. Yeah, look, we are ORT in, in terms of that opiate replacement therapy. At, at the moment, we don't have that at this residential setting. We do at our uh, sister rehab up at Chambers Flats, oh, Logan okay. House. They're supported just because there is a lot of governmental, um, I guess, expectations around obviously having that, those opiate, those high schedule drugs in a secure location where they can't be accessed, they need oh, to sure. be safe, bolted. Like there's a lot of regulation. Mm. Um, but, you know, there is also beyond, that's a, I think a big thing where the staff here do really well is we are linked in and liaise with so many services yeah. in terms of the Benevolent Society, you know, or DVPC, domestic violence. And um, we've got family programs, uh, you know, whether it's Quinn and the needle exchange, there is so many services around that for a consumer, someone wouldn't know how to access or engage. But when you access a service, they can then link you in. And, and that's where mm. continuity of care and transitioning is so important for us in what we do is that if someone comes here, we're not just sort of saying, all right, we'll see you out the door. You go. We want to see a really robust exit plan. Yeah, Who sure. are you linked in with for psychotherapy in regards to that it's bulk billing and there's no barriers there? Who have you got for, you know, your regular GP once again where there's no barriers in terms of bulk billing? Can you receive, you know, community-based support from one of our many teams in regards to they'll come out to your house, they'll set goals, they'll provide AOD and some mental health support. You know, you want to yeah. have that thing. Like, it's like, uh, you know, having your training wheels on. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. I can see yeah. that, man, because there, there's a, obviously like the, the probably the six months, even if you do just go through a detox program, mm. clean, clean yourself up, you're good, you're off using 
then you've got six months to a year of just constant mental battles being like, yeah. please, no, please, no. That could last, I don't know, another five years beyond that. Because you're right. Like, if you haven't dealt with all of the other things, even if you have dealt with everything, completely cleaned out everything else that's going mm. on in your life, completely reset yourself, you still have this deep underlying psychological desire. It's like a magnet constantly pulling you back that way. Sure. Because that's deeply programmed in you that that's your behavior. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, man, like that. And so, yeah, if, you, if you'd kind of just like, all right, see you later, buddy. Good luck. Yeah, it's on your horse. That's yeah. it. We've done our part, you know, and it's just not realistic, mm. you know, even for people. And that's where I think the skills that are learned for so many people when they're on that road to recovery or for anyone in life is shit. We're not taught it in school. The more we can learn about our thought process, how our cognitions and thoughts relate sure. to our emotions and then our behaviors. Uh, what are our driving forces? What are our weaknesses? What are our core beliefs of ourself mm -hmm. and how that influences the way we interact in relationships or mm -hmm. situations? The more we have a robust understanding of ourself in terms of why it is that we do what we do yeah. and what makes us tick, the more we can have that sense of mastery and control over our life. Yeah, man. And this is a lifelong journey. You know, I can teach this stuff. I can get up and teach the process around CBT for management of anxiety or whatnot. It doesn't change the fact that, you know, I might walk into a room and all of a sudden think, shit, are they people, you know, are they looking at me or is it is it this or I get frustrated and I don't realize till further down the line. It's more the fact that we need to start somewhere. Yeah. And it's one of the most advantageous things we can do. So you and you're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. You think is, is do you think like if if uh, any person listening to this, any normal person, regardless of their <laughs> mm. dependency or non-dependency issues, mm. uh, for everyone's mental health and well-being, in order to get a good, a better version of themselves out or more control over their own emotional state in their life, are there tools that you've noticed in your clinical experience mm. that would be useful that people can employ? today, tomorrow, oh, with like a, without a doubt. I mean, look, I think the first tool, a lot of people could have the benefit of accessing in Australia is seeing a psychologist. You know, you don't mm. need a mental health affliction. It's one of the best things you can do for yourself, whether mm. it's improving your communication, your interpersonal effectiveness, you know, improving your just overall mental health, like whatever it might be, we can all grow and develop. Mm. It doesn't matter who you are. Myself, I would hope that throughout my life I continue to grow and develop. It, it's a lifelong mm. process. You know, a lot of people or previously there was this idea that we finish schooling at shit, whatever, 17 or university and, well, we're done now. You know, this is, this is me. Mm. And it's just not the case. And so I think accessing therapy is a benefit for you to allow to maximize your life. Um, so that's sort of one thing that I would say, yeah, definitely. But there's a lot of small things that we can just look to include in our daily routine that will improve our quality of life. Some of them that sound like that kind of typical woo shit, <laughs> you know, like in terms of just taking stock of what we're grateful for on a daily basis, you know, understanding our thought processes, taking time out to do things in terms of grounding, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's going for a walk, engaging, having a purpose in sense of finding it out what it is that you like. And if you don't know what it is, well, then you sure as hell better figure it out. Mm. Get a bloody dartboard and put up a bunch of hobbies and interests and throw a dart and give it a shot because what have you got to lose? Yeah, sure. We need to have a sense of purpose. And mm. I think the more we move towards that, the more we feel that sense of contentment 
Also, depending on what that hobby or interest might be, there's a sense of connection and family often in various subsets. Mm. Uh, you know, th- th- there's these small things that we can do that aren't this, like, it isn't a cognitive approach. It's not a specific psychotherapeutical modality. It's, it's simple shit yeah. that culminates to better life satisfaction. Yeah, wow. And it's sometimes it's a funny thing because it's like, no, we want to be sick and we need all this like complex medicated, mm. all this shit to help us. And it's like, no, have you ever just thought about breathing? Yeah. <laughs> like, just try and take a few deep breaths. And sometimes like that's all it really needs. I'm doing this thing right now. It's called The Artist's Way. Have you mm-hmm. heard of that? It's no. a book by uh, Julia Cameron. And it's she developed this over uh, a long period of time teaching people how to get through creative blocks. She was a writer that was blocked for a long time, and then she kind of started practicing these weird tactics. And Mm. then over time, she's like, fuck, this is actually really helping me. She started helping other people, and then eventually wrote a book about it. Mm. And um, a friend of mine gave it to me a long time ago when I was struggling to make paintings, and she was like, you got to try this. It's a 12-week course that you follow Mm. through in this book. And it helped. the idea is to help you remove whatever blocks are stopping you from being able to create things. Mm. And the more, and because I'm doing this um, addiction support course on the internet at the Mm. same time, I'm like, wow, this book is in the exact same, like basically talking about the exact same methodologies for clearing out shit that's Mm. causing you to have self-destructive behavior. Mm. It's the same shit that's stopping me from being able to create. It's all this like, deep-seated core beliefs about myself, my inability to perform, my inability to communicate ideas, that nothing I have to say is any value. Mm. And um, one of the things that she says to do is once a week uh, have an artist date, which Mm. is like take your inner child, your inner artist, this Mm -hmm. little creative part of yourself, out for a date. Mm. Could be doing anything, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. But give yourself exact, like set an hour time that you 100% will be committed to listening to your self this Mm. part of you that you kind of never give any time to because it's all business and focus and money and whatever um and so I did that and I was out having this little artist date with myself and I was totally like I started like kind of having an internal dialogue with myself about how how are things going Mm -hmm. you know like how have we been Mm. (laughs) how are you going in there (laughs) how's it going and I was like I just it was like having a really tough conversation with someone that I've been really mean to for a long time. And hearing the stuff that I was saying back to myself about how fucking unbelievably unkind I am to myself about mm. the work that I'm creating. Like, the, if, if anyone could hear how mean I am to myself about sure. what I'm doing. Like, like I, and I think this is why I have like this underlying sense of my ability to be a cunt to be a shit person mm. is that because I know I can be that mean to myself, I'd never mm. be that mean to anyone else. For sure. But when my inner self started talking to myself about you're like, remember when you said that to me yesterday when you're trying to write that joke? And it's like, yeah. If anyone else is writing jokes, I've got friends, a bunch of friends that are trying to do comedy and stuff and they tell me their jokes and I'm never like, you fucking moron, you stupid idiot. Like, you're pathetic. Totally. And I say it often to, like, to clients yeah. of my, my own in that if you had a whiteboard in front of you and your thoughts were cast upon that, you know, you'd, you'd be disgusted. If mm. someone else said, if someone came up to you on the street and said the things that you're saying to yourself, you'd either feel morbidly depressed or you'd want to punch them. Yeah. You know, yes. you'd think, what an awful, what an asshole. Yeah. And yet we allow ourselves to do that. Why is it that we allow ourselves to be our own worst self-critic? You know, the yeah. damage that can come with that. 
often the best little trick I could give to people in, in, in dissecting their thoughts, if they're struggling to, all right, they're aware there's a problem with their thinking, they know it's not helpful, but they're like, well, shit, what now? They're having mm. to come up with replacement or more realistic thoughts. I say, take your problem and situation, cast it on someone you care the most about, oh, wow. and what would you say to them? You know, wow, yeah, that's and, great. And we naturally have this sense of compassion and empathy and understanding. You know, it might be often a, a big challenge for people in addiction is, is relapse. It's incredibly common and it's not a bad thing mm. in that, and by that I mean there can be a lot of learning in that process and it can be a natural part of the process. Often though, it'll, people will, will judge themselves so harshly and, and there'll be so much shame and guilt that those negative emotions will keep them stuck. Mm. They're so aversive of those emotions, they're more likely to use more sure. because they're like, well, fuck, this isn't nice. Uh, but the thing is, the reason they're wanting to use again and they're having those negative emotions is because they've let their thoughts go. They're telling themselves, I've stuffed up, I'm no good, I'm shit. And so often I'll say, all right, well, let's imagine it's your close friend that's had this relapse. What are you going to say? Mm. And, and the sentences then are, look, it's going to be okay. It's only once. It's only a couple of days. You'll be all right. You know, it's no worries. Get back on the horse. It's, it's all of a sudden they switch. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think it? that is that? Yeah, I was going to say that to you. <laughs> the therapist in me, I was going to say, why is that? Why, is, why do you think that is? Um, I think that uh, personally, at least obviously I can only speak to my own internal experience, is that there is a critic an internal critic in me that is trying to protect me from embarrassing myself Mm. by thinking that I have got something worth sharing and then realizing that I don't Mm. so it stops me from creating anything to start with because Mm. if I if I can stop myself from putting myself out there, then I will save myself the embarrassment of being wrong. Sure, like an internal uh, defense mechanism. Yeah, and I yeah. think, and who knows where that comes from. I mean, my parents were both hypercritical people, very sure. critical of themselves. They were artists themselves. So okay. it was like, like I, in a way, I've grown up in like a destructive, a creatively destructive household where there's a lot of mental health mm. uh issues channeled into creativity and then mm. also smothering mm. creativity and then i have this like internal desire to be that thing you know like if your parents were bankers you're like yeah yeah I got, i've got to be a banker i've got to be a banker like i have yeah. to be an artist i have to be but my worst critics are myself and my parents yeah for and sure. so it's like the people i want to impress the most the, people the that, first people we learn from yeah fuck. you know they shape us and it's not their fault. I, I definitely know that it's not their fault. It's got nothing to do with them. But well, I have this. I mean, you know, without them knowing, it's like that's the <laughs> responsibility of parenting. And often it's the, it's the, the ironic situation when you have people of an older generation talking about youth today. And it's like, yeah. well, who taught them? Yeah, who taught them? Yeah. What were your attitudes towards love, acceptance and kindness and compassion and teaching? And, you know, what did you teach them about respect in that regard rather than just like, authoritarian punishment sure you know? yeah yeah and it's you do because i say so and yeah. then the, and that smothers the question why which is the main reason that's the main exploration that we should be having inside our own brains is mm. why 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 mm. but we're taught from a young age as soon as someone says no and you say why they go you're being you're yeah. being shit you know what i mean now go to your room like now smother that why because you don't need to know why the answer is because no for sure. And that, and I think that's how we treat ourselves. So, like, when you ask that question, like, why is it that we do that? It's like, oh, I don't know, because I'm a piece of shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's, 
I think, I think also like the, um, the reason why we're harsh on ourselves too comes from a need to be, I don't know how to put this right. And it could just be me again too, as I never know, but it's like this, we have an inbuilt survival mechanism to be accepted Mm. in a group. So this voice is also telling us anything you do could jeopardize your, your uh, safety in this community. Mm. So you have to be careful Mm. with every action you take. And obviously as far as like creativity is concerned, unfortunately we're the ones that have to do the weird shit so that everyone else can get to experience it. Sure. And so that internal critic is always being like, are you sure you want to go out on a limb like that? Are you sure you, what, what's, what are the ramifications for that? How alone are you going to be when you say that? Mm. Yeah. And that it generally throws the what ifs, you know, is this, and really that underlying is like an element of anxiety and the, you know, the fear of the unknown. And let's say if we even moved away from, all right, well, why is it that we have this tendency to be more self-critical than compassionate. Let's say if we don't even look at the etiology of that, I think one thing that we can know up until now is if we reflect on our schooling, what were we taught about our thoughts and emotions? You know, what were we taught about exactly that scenario that mm. we tend to be more compassionate to others than ourselves? The influence of our thoughts on our emotions and behaviors. We didn't. We weren't. And I mean, society's mm-hmm. yes, rapidly we changing. Well, we were to, to have a sense of self-concept, to to yeah. have that sense of self-mastery, and understand. Well, I actually have a lot of control over my emotions. I just don't know how to do that. And yeah. when we weren't, so I think that's a big contributing factor. If we said why, why is it? Well, we're not taught how not to. Yeah. Why do you think it's so hard for us to see ourselves? In terms of a sense of introspection? Yeah, we're like... It's not normal? Yeah, it's like, you it's, know, we're just not used to it, like we're out of practice. What's the evolutionary purpose up until now? You know, has it, has yeah. it been adaptive? Has it served a function? You know, I, I, that's where I'm, the optimist in me is we, we've, we have rapidly evolved. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look at the, the timeline of, of, well, let's say... Homo sapiens, like 200,000 years ago in Africa, in the African continent. Now, about 130,000 years ago, there was some form of hominid on rafts just sailing around the Asian Pacific. Like, you know, this is a, a monstrous amount of time. And we've now got a society where, you know, only... 80 years ago, we're enslaving people for the color of their skin. Yeah, and, and then we've, we've had, we had a, a black president of America however many years ago. So mm. we have come phenomenal leaps and bounds. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where even with mental health, we have this, we have this complex of seeing into, or generationally, you know, this, the, the world revolves around our generation. And I think that's important. It serves a purpose. But I like to extrapolate a bit and say that, you know, it is phenomenal how far we've come in our understanding of ourself and yeah. what contributes to a better life. And, you know, that you see these people say, oh, we're not doing enough about mental health. We're not doing enough about this. Or, And it's like, well, really, it's not the truth. I mean, 
we're doing a lot. It's just a slow progress, and well, and good things take time, man. Yeah, we're changing like hardwired stuff and stuff. And that, yeah. Like with the advent of the internet, we could have never expected to have this much information at se- like so immediately available, constantly. Right there, and that is a big issue around people's attitude towards so many things is the negative attribution yeah. bias that we develop. Yeah. You know, we're saturated, even with the, the social media analogy you gave earlier, we are saturated with things that are impactful or shocking or that are negative because yeah. good does not sell. We know that. The yeah. media is to blame for this. If you look at the data as a whole, like from the World Health Organization across uh, the time frame, it, it, mental health has flatlined. We're not seeing this chronic decline. Substance use has declined. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing... Uh, in the, what was in the fifties, seventy percent of the world was in poverty, considered in poverty. Today, only ten percent. We're seeing better equality really? for yeah. We're finally seeing better equality for females than we've ever been. Sure, there's road to come, but it's hell of a lot better than it's ever been. We're seeing you know better awareness across the globe in terms of just general racism towards minorities and improvement in those areas mm-hmm. in healthcare access to healthcare education access to clean water like we as a society are the best we've ever been wow yeah but because of a negative attribution bias what sells what we're bombarded with on mm-hmm. the media we when i say we collectively people are out of touch yeah you know, we're so easily manipulated because we're driven by emotion. Yeah. And and, and people well, don't have a clear picture of the world. Sure, yeah. It gives us a, a skewed perception of yeah. the world that we're living in and ourselves. And like we were talking about before we started, like the um, like flight, fight, or freeze. Yeah. And that freeze is the one as the afterthought. But what we were talking about was like freeze is actually the most common response. Mm. But fight and flight are the ones that look cool on the movies. Sure. So, like, yeah. when you see some dangerous shit going down in a movie, you're like, oh, I'd be the fucking, I'd be in there fighting, or I'd, oh, I'd run away, car chase, and all this. Like, no, what you're going to do is stand there and shit your pants. Yeah. Because that's what everyone does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's what normal people do. Yeah. Until you've conditioned yourself. And unfortunately, like, the people that are fighting and flighting mm. have had to go through chaos and shit to learn that skill for sure and training to be able to do that and that's no good yeah you know yeah, i mean in, in, a, in some ways it's kind of like what well, this thing that i'm kind of working on is that sometimes we need to be punched in the face maybe by life a couple times so that we know how to handle ourselves and can maybe learn a lesson or two without a doubt i mean everyone's i guess if we think about that like an event leading to being in a moment of enlightenment, sure. everyone's is different. And, you yeah. know, we spoke earlier about, well, what is it that motivates people to come into, to, I guess, either Mirakai as a residential setting or even to seek help mm. is that everyone's version of chaos is different. You know, losing a relationship or losing a job is, might be enough for some people to say, hey, my drinking's a problem. I need to do something. Others, it's literally being in the ICU from overdose or, you know, attempting to commit suicide for the fifth time or whatever it might be. Mm. So everyone's sort of where they're at in terms of stages of readiness, you know, even being aware a problem exists, aware a problem exists, but maybe don't want to do anything about it. Wants to do something about it, but hasn't started that process. Yeah, or doesn't know how. Yeah, you're now maybe at the action stage where you're doing something about it, but who knows how things might unfold. So Mm. where someone sits on this sort of this stage of change and readiness 
really determines it's just different for everyone i guess you know and and the dysfunction of we can't social comparisons are the most natural thing once again it's an evolutionary adaptation but it's very harmful because what someone else can do with their addiction or recovery or what's worked for them is very different sure and that's what like what you're saying sorry to go on a rant but shits me about with social media in terms of when you said oh well certain people preach certain uh, I guess treatments for anything for feeling better life satisfaction I, I know it doesn't represent the whole so I shouldn't allow it to upset me but the frustrating thing about that is the condescending nature and that sure. anecdotally just what has worked for you in likely what has been your privileged existence mm-hmm. is not representative for the whole yeah. and why you think that it is is just is an insult sure yeah and the fact i mean like and in particular in these kind of circumstances like the picture that you're posting is filtered it's from a certain angle your body looks totally fucking different Mm. than that in real life so this is all a shame filter Mm. for your own imperfection but then underneath it you're saying any you can do anything achieve your dreams and it's like you are in complete denial here like one one thing i was saying to my friend that i think uh (laughs) is kind of funny is like if you're getting to know somebody based uh, in real life and then also on the internet, having a look at their internet profile would be a key indicator of the things that they're ashamed of about themselves. Like all of the things that they're filtering away, all the things mm. that they're projecting onto that thing mm. are very likely key indicators of subconscious things that they are not dealing with sure. in themselves. So it's like, like, cause I was saying like, Oh fuck you. One of these like Instagram influencers, there's no way you're gonna find anything out about that person because yeah. it's all bullshit. And yeah. then I was like, oh, actually, look at the opposite. Everything they're not saying in that post is exactly what they are. Sure. And yeah. that's what's so scary about it is because you have people underneath and that like underneath the post like that being like, oh my god, you're such an inspiration. You're so brave. I'm so. And it's just what you're doing. You're feeding dopamine back up to this person to feed an illusion they're caught in their own dream of themselves yeah and that's just as addictive as a physical substance and in my opinion i i think personally the people that have physical dependencies or real life dependency substance use disorders Mm. are more worthy of uh attention uh compassion understanding and even possibly worthy of giving life advice Mm. because they're fucking living sure and they're living in strife it's real life every single day struggle not some bullshit that you invented on the internet yeah without a doubt and i think you know you see that i mean and this is where we need to always temper ourselves like i was talking with the negative attribution bias is Mm. that sometimes the subset of society a small snapshot, <laughs> which is which, for whatever reason, comes into our field of view, is not representative of the whole. You know, we always yeah. need to look at humans on a continuum across a spectrum. You know, these standard deviations, and you know, naturally, the people who either say the most controversial things, or even uh, the best looking, or whatever it might be, will rise to the point of prominence, and we can have this false equivalency that that represents the whole. Sure. It's like the media; they will find the most extremist person on the left mm. to broadcast, and the most extremist person on the right. What you'd find is that probably most people are more centrist, mm. but that doesn't sell. Yeah, yep, of course, yes. Yeah. So we don't. We want need conflict. We yeah. need conflict and chaos because it's sexy and it's exciting. Yeah, and and it's when not. you actually live in conflict and chaos, it's. It's like, it feels like you've got cancer. Yeah. You know, like it feels like something is slowly eating away mm. at your life. And I, 
every time that I get myself in a chaotic situation where I find myself losing control of everything, I disappear as a mm. self. And my value as a person fades away into just basically pure survival mode. Mm. Like it's like I reduce myself down to just the pure survival get through today tomorrow the next day mm. and then once you kind of clear yourself and it's simple shit like just wake up make your bed sure do the dishes you know yep. simple shit because you're not clumbly clumsily stumbling clumsily you're not stumbling through shit like roadblocks in your way like i i just had to look through my finances and realize i had like unpaid fines going mm. all over the direction like just i i'm just like What's happening to me? Why have yeah. I let all of this stuff just get so out of control? And just taking little steps to just tick the box, tick the box. Because I think there's some element of like, I'm a creative person. It's chaos. It's like yeah. it's like you are, you need to live that way in order to like write jokes. It's stupid. It's like, no, I write way better jokes when I'm not worried if somebody's going to come like knocking on my door to get money from me or some stupid shit. Without a doubt. I'm going to, can we pause there? I got to go. Yes, of course. But I remember where we're at because... <laughs> I have, um, I, one time I opened a car door, um, I was driving my friend's car and I opened mm. a car door and it, the wind blew it open and mm. hit this Range Rover right next to me. Shit. I was like, like Fuck. It was uh, luckily it was like a white, normal colored Range Rover. It wasn't something special, fancy. Mm. It was a very fancy car, but yeah, well. and then, uh, that was now $1,300 that I needed to pay. I just left her a note on the car. Do you have insurance? No, um, not, no um. insurance. So $1,300. It went to her insurance company. And then I got the paperwork and the odometer on her car was like 40 Oh. <laughs> like she literally had driven it wow. home from Brisbane from the yeah, car lot. That, that's a slap I, in the face. <laughs> that's surreal. So like that's the kind of debts I have. It's just dumb shit like that. Like yeah. just talking on my phone in the car was a four hundred and seventy dollar fine. Yeah, it's now a thousand dollars. I heard that. Yeah, yeah. They got the cameras which like look at you at the traffic lights and Ugh. so but like even I, I know you were touching on before briefly, you said about, you know, the things that we need to do which I just, there's a lot of shit, you know, you're like, got to do the small things. I got to do this right. And that's where I think there is, there is no magic into therapy mm. or, or to feeling good. And, and I don't want to sort of overstate that because out of context, it could sound wrong, but sometimes it's a matter of just pulling up our pants and doing what we need to fucking do. Mm. And mm. Because it's easy to get stuck in self-pity. Now, the contrary to this is that might sound like I'm saying, well, just get over it. And it's not the case. There's a very distinct difference. There's a difference between realizing, well, shit, I, I am where I am and I can't change it. And so I need to actively do something about it. And the ingredients to, you know, for lack of a better word, happiness, or even let's say life satisfaction, a lot of that aren't unknown. We know what contributes to that. And it can start with very small things, but we need to be willing to do it and yeah. we need to just actually do it. And yeah. it, you know, it is tough to be an adult, you know, cause there is this assumed knowledge that well, by virtue of breathing oxygen, we should be happy. You know, happiness isn't a consistent state of being. And if you have that assumption, it's, it's well, it's false, yeah. um, but it's something we need to earn. We need to have this insatiable hunger for it and ensure and daily keeping check that we're doing the things which are moving us towards it. Sure and not further away. And that is a lot of work, but yeah. it's worthwhile. 
Yeah, and, it, and the nice thing about it is that it's tangible, I think. Mm. Like, when I walk into my room and it's not a fucking just shit show, mm. I feel good. Mm. Like, no, no matter where I've been, whatever's happened during the day, whatever chaos is going on, if I come home and my room is tidy, mm. it's like, okay, I'm safe, I'm comfortable, I can sit down on my bed if I need to and I don't have to move a bunch of shit out of the way. Mm. Like, just simple stuff like that. That if I t- And it's a little bit of, like, self-care, I think. I wake up in the morning... And I, uh, as a part of this book also, I do what they call morning pages. It's mm. three pages of just freeform writing. Cool. And you're just supposed to, it's supposed to be a moment without that bullshit critic doubt mm. inside your head telling you that you're not good enough. Mm. So you just write whatever the fuck comes. It's like mm. the most inane, stupidest shit you've <laughs> ever heard. Like, just dumb. And so you sit there and just get that out. For me, like creating 20 minutes of space for my Mm. brain to just let out whatever the fuck it's thinking about. I'm remembering more about my dreams. I'm Mm. able to make make links about things that I'm probably, that are still unresolved in me that I'm trying to work through, like a lot of emotional attachments to things and things that I need to grow from and learn Mm. from and change. And all of that stuff is coming through my dreams, coming through in this stupid writing, and then also just nonsense, dumb shit. Mm. And then... It's like almost like I wake up in the morning and just kind of wipe the whiteboard clean, make my bed, and then it's like, okay, mm. now what? Whatever I can do from now on, I will collect chaos throughout the course of the day, and then I'll come home and I have this safe, clean, nice space to be in, and then mm. I reset again. Mm. And just simple shit like that, I feel at least just kind of, it's, it's like it just sets me in a track towards my better self. Definitely. And I think what's two things are valuable there is, one, your awareness of what is and isn't good for you, because we need to be aware sure. of when behaviors don't serve us. Mm. You know, we need to be, have enough self-awareness that if I do X and I feel Y and I don't like it, then I need to change X. Mm. And that can be difficult. So if you break that routine, even for myself in this environment, if I skip exercise after work, I know that I'm not doing myself a service mm. and that if anything, I'm likely to feel worse. And so having an awareness of what works for you is so valuable. So yeah. developing self-awareness, self-concept, how it is that I operate. But then also, I guess the flip side of that, even those activities and behaviors you're doing, you're finding something that's in line with a, a, a unique part of you. Mm. A part of you that makes you feel like life is worth living. Sure. You know, we need to have that. Everyone's is different. And that's why, you know, I mentioned before, if you don't know what that is, then you sure as hell want to figure that out. Mm. Because I refuse to believe that no one has nothing. It can be hard to find. It It can be hard to believe that you deserve any better. Yeah. But it sure as hell is there. And you got to find it and you got to chase it. And, you know, like life is to be lived. Life is to be enjoyed. And so you need to create that. It doesn't happen magically to you. Mm-hmm. You know, often even clients who come in here to Mirakai, I'll say to them, recovery or getting better is not some magic fairy dust that I'm going to sprinkle over you by virtue of me presenting a group or being in therapy. You know, it, it is not something that we do to you. You know, we can teach the tools and the skills and provide the best informed holistic care, but it's your ability to formulate goals, to identify things that you need to work on and, and tangibly work to overcome that, to change that. Mm. It's a self-driven process. It's a process that you need to be accountable. And that's really scary. Yeah. Do you think that same voice that tells us that we can't do things like this piece of shit you're a piece of shit voice mm. 
that thing that is so mean to us mm. is the same thing that guides us to do behavior that's bad for us? Do you think that they're linked to each other? Look, I guess... I'd like say it's like less that they have a relationship, but that voice essentially is our unconscious thoughts. And mm. I think that it's once again that chicken or the egg. If, our, if Let's say we're not aware of our unconscious thoughts, which start probing away, increasing our anxiety or depression for the day. We start thinking about failures that we've had, relationships that haven't worked out, situations we've failed, why we're not good looking. We stand in front of the mirror and we say, oh, well, this gap in my teeth isn't nice. I'm a bit too fat. I'm not muscular enough. Oh, I wish I was this. Mm. We have a scroll on Instagram. Why aren't I like this person? Why aren't I on a holiday? When's the last time I went on a holiday? So all of this shit's going on. Mm. Now we feel likely in a shitty way. And then that emotion is likely to lead to a certain behavior, which might be less than ideal. So I guess in a lot of ways, yeah, you know, the thoughts in our head or un unmanaged thoughts very well do have an influence on our behaviors. Mm. You know, we might be, because we're in that depressive state, we skip, you know, exercising or, or we get in a fight with someone else because we project our own hate for ourselves that you're thinking that of me, that my partner thinks I'm shitty. And so now I'm getting in a fight with them. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I think in a very real way that, that thoughts left unmanaged are a real problem. But, you know, the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. Mm -hmm. So being aware at the very least of what is going on up there is, is, a, is a great start. Yeah, 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 man. Because it, it, it is such a stupid thing like that. I feel, and maybe I'm fucking nuts, which is possible. Oh, we all. Is that I feel that I, I really have like very, a clear sense of this like inner uh, goodness in me, this like clarity mm. that when I'm in tune with this thing, I feel confident on stage. Mm. I feel happy. I feel connected to um, conversations I'm having with other people. Mm. I feel connected to my work. Like I'm, I'm present, mm. focused. I'm present. I'm here, and I'm like kind of not necessarily not necessarily in the zone because that's kind of the next level to that, mm. which I have been in the zone periodically, and that's mm. fucking amazing. Mm. Just like completely tuned in, and we get it in fighting a bit because it's such a high adrenaline, high intense situation that sometimes if you can kick yourself into that like pure clear consciousness it's unbelievable massively but, the odds well i guess it's the ultimate state of being present as well yes that's what it feels like it just mm. feels like there's nothing else there like it, and it's almost like you can't even be in it mm. you're experiencing it but you're not even a part of it because you if you even consciously think of a self in that part it kicks you out of it 100 percent. yeah so like i know that there's this like there is a part of myself that's very clear and focused and present in that and then there is this other thing that lives with me like my ego i guess you would call it that is uh built out of thoughts and it's mm. it's constantly it's got good thoughts bad thoughts high all, all of my actions for the day are like mm. dictated by this cloud of this thing and um so when I'm about to do an action, I always have this sense of like the lower, it's an intuitive version of me, mm. this clear version of me that's kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. And then the other part of me is like, ah, fucking go. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, Push. Yeah. and then other times I, when I do like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. I think this thing in me is telling me not to do that. I need to not do that. And if I can create a little bit of space and actually listen to that thing, usually I do come out of it better. Yeah. 
So, yeah. And, and, and what you said there, I think that, you know, creating space and, mm. and, and paying attention to that. At the very, at the heart of even psychotherapy, if, if I can have a client develop self-awareness around their process, mm. well, that's a, that's a huge just uh, achievement to say, all right, I'm aware that I have this sense of confidence and passion about things, but then at times I have this other side of me that jumps in. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but it definitely exists. And I need to mediate that. I need to regulate that. And that level of awareness is incredibly value, mm-hmm. like valuable. And like I think if most people could harness that or understand that, at the very least, figure out what's going on in their head in situations, then they would achieve a greater sense of, of, of control in their life. Do you find that kind of sense of of self-awareness can lead people to be more easily manipulated because they have the ability to see all sides of all situations all the time? I personally feel like I can be manipulated very mm. easily because I am aware that my own behavior, I'm responsible for my own behavior, I'm responsible for my own experience of my own mm. reality. So if somebody's doing something, I don't like get mad and Mm. put up a barrier or put up a boundary I should say Mm. I don't do it at all I just go oh this is you feeling a thing I'm just gonna lay here and take it definitely yeah and it's easy to rationalize that behavior we're talking about it with Joker and that you've just had it was this almost aha moment and I'm sure there's probably people who didn't have that aha moment and maybe they're more sane than us but (laughs) you know most people are like oh you know to that that talk show host when he gets murdered in that situation it's like fuck you you know you've done this and you deserve this like and but really that could be someone who has a family who has kids he's working a job and you know it it speaks to that sense of compassion and I think compassion and empathy is never a bad thing the more the more of it we have the better as a society we will be tempering it though and understanding when it does and doesn't serve us is valuable. Yeah, okay. And if we bring that back to something relevant in terms of, I guess, the space that I work in, in drugs and alcohol, often the challenges we have is families and loved ones of people in, in addiction is saying, well, how do I support this person, you know, versus just deal with the chaos of their life? And, and often, without people knowing, they're enabling behavior. Yeah, because they're fearful of, of what might happen, of, of sure. the unknown, of, you know, if they don't allow them to stay at their house, if they don't give them that extra money, if they don't do this, and, and it, it's sustaining the behavior. And, and so, yeah, I think empathy can always allow us to, to not hold boundaries, to allow someone to encroach them where we say, oh, well, we, we rationalize their behavior. We get it. We, you know, you've been through so much. Yeah, you know, I treat me like this because of this you know you were treated like this as a kid or you know so you make allowances for people but I guess a good sort of motto to live by uh, or a marker of whether it's healthy or not is that someone else's mental health is never an excuse to perpetuate toxic behaviors mm. ever doesn't matter who you are what you've been through you know if someone's in your corner well then you appreciate them and you love them and you hold on to that. And of course, you know, sometimes in the process of addiction, we, in, we encroach our own values and also the values of others. And that happens. But for families and loved ones, um, learning to set healthy boundaries, which are in the best interest of their loved one, is an incredibly uh, tumultuous thing to do psychologically. It's tough. 
Fuck. You know? And, yeah. and we've got, like, uh, family therapy programs we offer. Like even on site here, Matt McGregor, a, a psychologist, he, um, a lot of his groups, whether it's um, parenting groups altogether or for loved ones, whether it's one-on-one therapy and counseling, that's a lot of what he does, you know, training and teaching people how to be that support person, how to still be in their life, but also ensure that we're looking after ourselves. Mm. And that our behaviors are in the best interest of the other person. Yeah. Yeah, because you could unwittingly be contributing to the problem by trying to be helpful because you just don't know what you're doing. Without a doubt, you know. You know, we can't, if someone's drowning and we don't know how to swim, well, then it's bloody pointless if you go and jump in that water. Yeah. And so what happens is through the process of sometimes supporting loved ones, we lose our own footing with our mental health. And as we decline, we are no longer the best person to provide that support. And it can, it can become an unhealthy dynamic. So being the best version of ourself, prioritizing ourselves, being selfish and taking care of ourselves, is valuable. And from that place of positive mental health and well-being, we can then determine how can we help this person in a way that's best for them. Yeah, sure. And I guess that's probably a really important skill that you've had to develop being that this is your work because you're drawn to this kind of work, obviously, being an empathetic and compassionate person, but you have to go home and live your life at the end of the day. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, it's you need to learn how to function. And, you know, I have a responsibility to my patients that come Monday, I'm in the best shape myself. Sure. And what kind of, are there any kind of like tips or skills that you have developed for yourself personally to create those boundaries and stay strong with your boundaries that people can employ if they're in that situation? Yeah. Look, I guess in terms of like my work with clients, it develops over time. And, uh, you know, because I I think I'd agree that historically why I ended up in this profession, I do find myself quite compassionate and can rationalize almost all behavior. Um, But it's about understanding, you know, everyone has a right to their own life and their own happiness and you know I can't help other people if I'm not the best version of myself so for me I think it's about understanding that everyone needs to take accountability for their life you know I don't I will give in therapy or in this environment the best of myself professionally but at the end of the day that's all I can do what someone does with that and, and whether they follow through with that, whether they take accountability is up to them. You know, I'm not someone's life raft. They need to be their own life raft. You know, we can teach skills. And so often we do develop in, in, in supporting loved ones and, and through addiction, this sense of, well, I've all, I'm all they've got. Well, no, they're all they've got. And then they need to look for other support around that. But, you know, we, we can't go down with the ship. Yeah. If you know what I mean. And, and looking after ourselves is so integral as a part of that because otherwise we can't carry on and do what it is that we love, which is helping other people. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, we, we get sucked down the rabbit hole as well. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, man. Mm. Well, it's cool that you're able to do this. And, and, and you mentioned before we started recording that you also look after wildlife you stop people from poaching animals yeah like i guess in uh in two occasions now i've been to africa the last time i was there um for close to a year in regards to anti-poaching and wildlife law enforcement so that's anything from training local range of horse uh in terms of patrol and military tactics um for working in a protected area uh as well as investigations and intelligence so sort of 
retroactive after an animal's been poached, uh, sort of with the use of informants and doing undercover work, building up a profile and essentially trying to move forwards to piecing together an operation where hopefully you'll arrest suspects and then the process of working towards prosecution. So wow. training and, and, and getting the tools that they need, whether it's hidden cameras, recording devices, um, writing a statement, photographing evidence, because the, the level of corruption throughout Africa is, is so rife that even if you sort of get to the point of arresting and have an operation, it's likely or it, that it will fail due to some level of corruption or mm. mismanagement of evidence or whatever it might be. Wow. So you're like, I mean, what's cool about that? The only reason I bring it up now is that like you're living this shit day in, day out. Like you are a very authentic case of somebody who's experiencing pretty much extremes in life all the time, every day. So you really have to have that strong sense of security and self. Mm. And you've said you train martial arts for a long time yeah. as well. So Since yeah, I was 13. Yeah. <laughs> I love that's it. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And I think that's where it's in life, understanding what I'd say non-negotiables sure. and, and, and learning the awareness of when we're not doing them, how that makes us feel. Mm-hmm. You know, I know for myself, if I don't have... If I don't find the things that I'm passionate about or understand my strengths and what it is that I enjoy doing and figure out a way to use them in my life, not just through my profession, but because sometimes it can't always be through our profession. You know, there's, we see quotes, well, you know, find what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And sometimes it's not like that. Yeah. And sometimes it's the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, like me trying to come up with an idea, like the amount of mental drudgery I have to go through but the reward at the end of it when the idea finally does poke its head through the clouds it's like fuck thank god I showed up but it's not easy it's not like oh writing jokes is easy or making paintings is just a stupid easy thing it's like fuck that's the hardest work I've ever had to do I can go and type numbers into a computer for an admin company forever Mm. I couldn't give a fuck but that would make me want to kill myself yeah (laughs) sure yeah and that's I think if you find that right well I can't get it through my work then learning about ourself in terms of what, our, what are our strengths, because you touched on it before in terms of that, you didn't quite use the word flow, but you said in the zone, mm. you know, when we find out what our strengths are in terms of whether it's compassion, love of learning, anything, you know, education, teaching someone else, whatever it might be, when we use that character strength, uh, I guess the, the term that was coined and uh, I would definitely pronounce it, mispronounce his name is a Russian psychologist, uh, Mihaly Mihali, And he had this idea of flow, you know, this concept of when we're doing what we love and that we're passionate about, this sense of timelessness, mm. that things fall off the clock. And we need to find what that is for each of us and, uh, and exact it in our life. You know, for me, it's that whether it's through martial arts or going over and doing this work in Africa or even, you know, I just love tinkering on things, taking about a laptop, working on a motorbike, building an old van, all that stuff. You know, that's my, for whatever reason, there is a sense of that when I'm doing that, that I'm just lost in that moment. Yeah, right. And it's so good for me. Yeah. But it's easy if I have a tough day, you know, maybe both professionally, but maybe in my own personal life, I want to go home and sit on the couch and do fuck all. <laughs> yeah. you know, I want to, you know, just... Just wallow. Just, you know, <laughs> grab that bottle of wine when you go home, just do this and not do anything. I'll skip training because whatever. Then I'll get Uber Eats and I'll do this. Yeah. But I know that's not good for me. Mm. And so I need to be aware of that. I need to identify that and I need to make an effective change in that stuff. So that's where it's like we all need to have our non-negotiables. And I think for a lot of clients, 
that I work with or even that come into this residential setting, it, it's starting even at ground zero with that stuff. Like you said, making your bed, mm. you know, having a week planner. What are we eating? Let's have three meals a day. Let's shower, whatever it is. Let's start to get structure back in our life so that we feel we are in control and that our life is not out of control, that we're mm. just in a cyclone of chaos. Because mm. mm. um, then we can reflect on a day and say, well, fuck it, the bare minimum, I made my bed. I committed to having my three meals, two meals. I'm making a meal. I had a shower. I said I'll do it, and I did it. Mm-hmm. And that feels good. Yeah. Little promises to yourself that you keep, huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. we need to because if we don't, well, we feel shitty. Yeah. Yeah, you man. <laughs> and I think that's where, like, my susceptibility to being misled or falling off into traps or not trusting myself is because I've abandoned myself. It's mm. like I don't listen to what's good for me, so then I'm taking advice from other people or I'm looking for external inputs on how to do what's really, at the end of the day, my own, only my decision. Mm. And then all of a sudden I end up doing behavior that's not me mm. or it doesn't feel authentic to me and then it, then it becomes shame or worry or regret or doubt. Mm. And then it's like, fuck, if I had just taken the time to trust myself, listen, and do what I know is right, what felt right, then at least I, I'm responsible for the fallout of it. Mm. Not a resentment of like, oh, fuck, why did I listen to you? Mm. You know, why did I do that? I shouldn't have never have done that. Like, I, like, and obviously that kind of thinking is useless, but at the same time the best lesson i can ever learn out of any of that is like pay attention to my own self yeah get as much advice as you can work with a whole group of bunch of different opinions and then form your best road find out what works for you pay attention you know pay attention to yourself and how you feel because you know that'll be a good indicator yeah you're morbidly depressed and you feel discontent you feel hollow and your relationships are chaos and all the rest well, that's worth listening to. Yeah. You know, that's worth paying attention to and shining the light inwards and saying, all right, well, what's my part to play in this? You know, how can I do something about this to change this in my life? And, you know, I don't even when I speak with clients about this, I'm not speaking from a place of enlightenment, which you see a lot of, like we talked about before, the Insta helpers want to do as <laughs> if they've reached this place of nirvana or they know better. Mm. Well, I know these things and it's not because I've made them up. I mean, you, you learn them throughout your career and profession and what's worked for other people, but it's stuff that I still need to do. I'm mm. not immune to it. Yeah. So we've got yeah. to get stronger within ourselves to be able to deal with change because change is inevitable regardless. Without a doubt. And yeah. I think, you know, that's where the best thing we can do for ourselves mm. is to look within and look at your own space, your own backyard mm. and say, well, how's my space looking? Yeah. You know, what am I doing in my life to either be the best version of myself, to take care of my mental health, to truly have insight, mm. you know, before we either put ourselves on a pedestal as, as a role model to others or whatever it might be, you know, if we are the best version of ourselves, and we are, we're doing everything within our power to have a certain level of mastery over our lives, then that will only flow on into others. Mm. And I think it's easy to distract from that because it's scary and we want to focus on other people or what they're doing or this or that. Mm. But, you know, and I, I think that's what I see with so many clients. They come in here, they reset, they go back to ground zero and you can start to look within. Well, that's the goal. Yeah. You know, start there and build up. Wow, man. Yeah. Well, I'm happy you guys are here. I'm very happy that you're... And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it. Um, if people need to 
reach out for support, how do they get in touch with you guys? For sure. So the, it's really easy in that we've got a central switchboard you can call. And of all the services we've got from family programs, indi- indigenous programs, um, family recovery units, where units you can stay with your children whilst receiving drug and alcohol treatments, the family therapy that I mentioned about Matt McGregor for just supporting loved ones, mm. um, the residential rehabs that we have in Queensland, New South Wales, you call the central number. And essentially, they'll arrange for someone to call you back um, within three business days and to start the process with doing an assessment and whatnot. Um, I do have that number. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's one 727 957 Or people can just Google uh, Lives Live Well online. Um, but I mean, you know, even that is something which will allow you to access so many other services, which is fantastic. Yeah, so if, um, even if it's not a live-in rehab, there's a million different options. Yeah, community guys, not everyone needs, you know, residential rehab. Mm. You know, sometimes, you know, you work in a job, just having uh, counselling support, AOD support, whatever it might be, they'll meet you at your level, you know. Yeah. Residential setting isn't for everyone, and, and that's rightfully so. Um, so even that, you know, through our services, but I'll just encourage anyone... Regardless, if they want to be the best version of themselves, they feel a nagging sense of doubt in the life and the way they live and they want to improve, well, then just go see a therapist. Mm-hmm. Not because they're enlightened and they're any better than you, but they've worked with a lot of people in the same situation and through evidence and research and history and training and their own experience, they've got a starting to get a picture of what works. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And, man. and you've got nothing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're not on your own, for God's sakes. And no. that stupid voice in your head that tells you you can't. Yeah, you know, it's that same thing that it's saying that if we do the same thing over and over and expect a different result, definition of insanity. Yeah. We find ourselves consistently at life in a crossroad. I take the path of the unknown. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, I've got my own assumptions about whether it'll work or my own preconceived attitudes about, say, seeing a therapist or whatever it might be. Or I keep doing the same shit and apathetically having self-pity for the circumstance I find myself in. Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably worth taking a leap and trying out that path on the left. Yeah, yeah, man. Wow. Thank you so much. For Thank doing you. This. this was a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>